Lord, this is uh, your text. We believe that this text was inspired by you. This text is to be applied to our hearts in light of what Jesus has done for us. Father, help me to not instruct without a view to the cross. Help me to not just exhort and rely on human strength. Lord, help your word become fastened to our hearts and help us to rise and enter into the truth of it for our joy and the joy of others. Reshape our understanding of words today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so today is all about this, really verses 6 and 7. That's all we're going to do today. Titus. Titus was a convert, a Greek Greek man, and he was a convert during one of during during Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, later in life, uh, Titus ends up on the Isle of Crete, and uh, he has we have in our Bibles an epistle written to Titus, and a little tiny one toward the back of your Bible. If you get to the maps, you've gone too far. Um, Titus is a, a remarkable book about pastoral ministry. It's very, very insightful. So Titus has been a companion of Paul's for a number of years, and Titus has been sent on a journey to interact with the Corinthians. The Corinthians have been a troubled church, if you're catching on to some of the new, the new aspects of, uh, of this uh, perhaps you're new with us today. Um, the Corinthians have been a, a troubled church. Divisions. They endured uh, immorality. Um, someone was sleeping with their stepmother. Paul had to confront them in 1 Corinthians 5. The Corinthian church was uh, tolerating this. They were divisive, uh, a hard group to work with. They had disorder. Um, some disorder was associated with the Lord's Supper. And they had turned to other apostles. They had found some other apostles, so-called apostles. That's the language Paul uses for them. They are not real apostles, but they are willing to follow them. And there's some thought that actually one particular individual has really begun to sway the Corinthians away from trusting Paul. Now, the Corinthians were established. Corinth was a church established by Paul. He risked his very life to establish this church. It's recorded for you in Acts 18. Um, Corinth was a very metropolitan area of Greece. It's on the far western side of Greece. It was a big place for commerce. And lo and behold, God used Paul to plant a church there. But Paul has been expressing in numerous ways he is discouraged. He is not at peace with the Corinthians. And um, he's, in fact, downcast. Verse 6 tells us, look at verse 6. Uh, God who comforts the downcast. And he just had, just had said in verse 5 that he said we were, we were dealing with fights on the outside, constant affliction, and then there's a turmoil inside us. Life is really tough for the Apostle Paul. 
And he's discouraged, he's downcast. And in verse 6, lo and behold, he is encouraged. In verse 6, and he, he, he turns this in a Godward way. It's not just a random event. But God who comforts the downcast. It's a great verse. I hope you hang on to it. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us, this is Paul's companions, by the coming of Titus. Embodied, embodied communication. All the communication on our digital, in our digital devices is disembodied communication. All those posts, uh, all the updates, it's all disembodied. The person you are interacting with is not present with you. There's something remarkable about embodied communication in a person. Titus went. Titus, known as a companion of the Apostle Paul, he went to Corinth. Probably not an easy thing to do. He, it got personal because Titus personalized his responsibilities to meet with the Corinthians and interact with them. Titus chose not to be at a distance. Just you get the, get the sense of what's going on here. It's a text that we could easily overlook, easily overlook, just sort of like this little factoid. Oh, that's interesting. Titus brought the news back, and, and now we move on to something more important. This is, this is, this is important. Titus gets close. Titus moves past the potential layers of pride, potential distancing that the Corinthians may, may have exhibited. We don't, don't know for sure, but we actually have his, his report that, oh, they, there were no layers. They were vulnerable. They were truthful. They were mourning their indifference. Have you ever had someone give you good news by way of a report oh we need that we need that in the church by the way we need good gossip we tend to specialize in that other kind of gossip the good gossip is a representation of someone else's heart in a genuine way sincere way by the way we are representing others all the time I can't tell you how often I walk into a coffee shop and people are on their phones and they're talking about it's clear they're talking about someone else. And I'm just trying to get a latte. And I'm hearing about their complaints about this someone else. How easy it is to sort of unload and to express our disappointment when the person's not there. But when they are present, now you've got to deal with something. You've got to deal with their eyes. You've got to deal with their demeanor. You've got to deal with their sadness. It's something you've said. Uh, you've got to deal with something hurtful you've done. In other words, it gets personal with Titus, and it's as it should be. And Titus is receiving the Corinthian communication, and he inquires, and he takes his own, he, he, his own life now is in embodying the gospel. The gospel includes tracking down those who are wayward. Those who are troubled. Those who need counsel. The gospel includes the movement, and of course this movement started in heaven with 
the, with Christ willing to come and be embodied, there's a movement towards sinners in the gospel. There is no spiritual cul-de-sac. There is no us for and no more. The gospel is a movement toward darkness, a movement toward sinners, all kinds. You wouldn't be here unless there was a movement toward you. And I wouldn't be here if there wasn't a movement toward me. So Titus moves toward the Corinthians, a troubled church, a troubled church. He moves toward them. Some of us need to engage in ministry. Uh, the troubles of ministry, the problems, the people, people. Well, that's just like, I'm going to keep an arm's length. Just, I mean, I've got enough going on in my life. I, pastor, that's why you're here. You take care of them. And, you know, folks, that is a, I, I am an equipper. Ephesians 4 tells us that pastors have been given to the church to equip the saints for the work of service. Do you know that? So I'm equipping you right now. And the, equipment's, the equipping is coming in form of an ex- exhortation. You have been given gifts of ministry, gifts of words that can be used in the life of someone else. And that you may be better at it than I am. How about that? Yes, it's true. Some of you have been through unique circumstances in life. I have not been through those. You've seen God faithfully work in your life. I have not seen that particular work of God. And you can minister to people. You can share words that matter to others. Ask yourself, am I resisting embodied love? Ask yourself. Then I'm resisting the very Savior who embodied himself for me. You will be stretched way beyond your comfort zone. Welcome to ministry. I love the story that Paul Tripp, Christian counselor and author, tells. Where he's teaching a group of seminary students, and he tells he's teaching away, teaching away, and he's a Christian counselor, and he's describing the problems people have, the difficulties, the impossible situations that sometimes are brought into the pastor's office, and he's describing these things. And then one person in the back says, "Hey." Can't we just farm out these people to like someone else so we can get on with the ministry? That was actually said to Paul Tripp. And then Paul Tripp says, this is the ministry. Titus was willing to go. And he comes back with comfort for Paul. And I would just, I want to exhort you to go deeper in your willingness to be a minister, to minister, interact, build up, edify, strengthen others. There's a very influential book about the internet. It's a little bit dated now. It's called The Shallows. Nicholas Carr, author. The subtitle, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. And he says this, The Internet's interactivity gives us powerful new tools for finding information, expressing ourselves, and conversing with others. It also turns us into lab rats. 
constantly pressing levers to get tiny pellets of social and intellectual nourishment. Aren't you glad you came to church today? You were called a lab rat. I was called a lab rat. I don't know if that connects with you. I'm just just saying to you that there's the impression that connectivity is happening in the digital age. And there's some truth to that, but not a lot. Connectivity is happening in Macedonia 2,000 years ago with Titus coming back with a, with a report, eye-to-eye contact with his friend and apostle. It mattered what he said. He spoke clearly. He spoke truthfully, spoke joyfully, and it meant something. It built up the apostle Paul. We often think of him as armor-plated. It's really kind of it's really interesting to watch what happens in 2 Corinthians. He, sometimes he's like, like he, he's, it seems like he's a bit all over the place. He's a bit fearful. Oh, no, uh, God's always comforting us. Moving all around. His emotions are a bit raw, I would say. Do you want tiny pellets or deep comfort through life together with others in the body of Christ? Titus came and he comforted the downcast. Um, uh, being downcast is a problem in our age. One manifestation of that is friendships and the lack of friendships. Men, are you reading these articles? There is a crisis of male friendships in our day. Men are lonely and downcast. The image of sort of the John Wayne macho man, independent, right? The cowboy who comes, fixes the problem in the, in the town, right? You know the image, right? That's the icon of the American world, right? Our America, of America. The icon is the cowboy. Marlboro figured that one out. And uh, the icon is the cowboy. Now, what does he do? Does he join the Kiwanis Club at the end of the movie? What does he do? He rides off into the sunset. The movie started with him independent. He comes in and fixes the day, shoots, shoots, gets the bad guys, and then what? Rides off into the sunset. That's us, guys. How about that? Doesn't that resonate? Does it resonate? Yeah. All right, right? Well... It's, re- that it's wreaking havoc on our relationships. Titus comes in friendship. Speaking of Paul Tripp, he says in his book, Instruments in a Redeemer's Hand, he says this, The church is not a theological classroom. It is a conversion, confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center. This means that in our relationships, we are going to grow together. We're going to embody love. We're going to communicate words that matter. We're going to speak to fears. We're going to communicate in a way that builds people up, speaks to their to their heart. It's going to be a rich experience. And then 
Paul Tripp goes on, where flawed people place their faith in Christ, gather to know and love him better, and learn to love others as he designed. Paul, Paul receives this message from Titus. Oh, Paul, the Corinthians have changed their heart toward you. They are mourning their view of you. They see the need for your fatherly apostolic care for them. And they are growing. And in our language, we'd say they're growing in their sanctification through repentance. Uh, By the way, um, and we'll be talking about repentance. Repentance is one key way how you grow as a Christian. It's, It's one key way. When Jesus says in the early parts of the Gospels, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, the tense of that verb is repent and keep on repenting. Repentance as a lifestyle. This is the first thesis thesis of, of, of Martin Luther as he posted his complaints on that door, the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. He expected his own church to repent because the word of God would pierce the heart and there would be repentance. Luther just said, this is what the Christian life is. It's no surprise. Things worked out a little differently. Now verse 7. Let me look at, look at verse 7. Well, what, what, was this, what was this report, Titus? As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me. so that I rejoice still more. They're owning their disregard for holiness. They are no longer defending or excusing themselves. In the language of of, of David Pallison, uh, I'll explain this. There's traction. They're just drifting along, Corinthians. They got their own opinions, their own ideas. They got their own apostles. They got it going on. We got church, by the way. We got it going on here. We got it going on over here. Going on here. Who's Paul? Well, he was that guy who started this, but we don't need him anymore. They're just kind of on their own. There's no return in repentance to their apostle. There's no traction, and then God, by His great, by His grace and Spirit, provides traction, change. They see the need. I was at a Christian counseling conference years ago, and they, uh, these full-time Christian counselors in the Philadelphia area, CCEF, you may be familiar with them, Christian Counseling and Education Foundation. These full-time counselors are up on the platform, and then there's a, over 1,000 Christian counselors out there, and it's open mic time, right, open mic, so you could ask them any questions. And so people are bringing their, kind of their frustrations in counseling in the church. Uh, and one individual I thought was interesting, he, he said, he described a marriage where they were really independent, really indifferent to growing together, and living in the same house but separate lives. And uh, the question was posed to, the, to everyone on the platform, what would you do? And I thought David Pallison, who was kind of the senior counselor, everybody kind of looked at him like, you got any ideas? <laughs> And he said, well, the marriage could go on for 20 years because there's no traction. What did he mean? He meant that they can't, that 
the, the standards of marriage, the, the call of marriage, the beauty of marriage was simply not valued by them. And so there was no traction to change. Repentance is, is like rugged, like tank track, traction. That's what repentance is. If you've ever seen like a four-wheel drive vehicle like climb up some mountain like I didn't even think that was possible. That's what repentance is. I didn't think it was possible for a person to turn around of their view of and, and they've held some sinful position or some sinful, sinful um, attitude and then they come in and they are repenting. Uh, the moment they say, I'm sorry, I, the moment they say, I'm sorry, the traction is moving, they're climbing that mountain. It's powerful. Often in the church, and I say often, purposely, often in the church, when people are held to account, and I can also include Presbyterian pastors at the Presbytery level, and when I say the word church, they complain about process. In other words, when someone's being held to account, they figure out a way to fault the process. They could have come into the room, perhaps two elders are meeting with someone, they could have come into the room and said, wow, I'm sorry I took you away from your family on Saturday at 8 in the morning. Wow, what's going on? with what's, What's happening? But in other words, so often there is not the traction of a heart that is teachable and is seeking what on earth could I have done or what attitude do I have that would not be glorifying God. Oh, brothers, tell me. They are complainers about the process. They are, I was comforted by the, the report about your mourning. This means you get it. You own it. No longer are you deflecting. We live in a culture of deflection. Excuse making. Blaming the chemicals in my body. And there are chemicals that need to be treated. I don't doubt that. Blaming my childhood. Blaming this. Blaming everything. Everyone has something outside of them to complain about. Or that proves causation. This, this is the reason why I had to act this way. You were never required to sin. But the, the, the Corinthians are, are, are no longer excusing themselves. And what does Titus do? He brings this report home for his friend Paul. Well, let's ask the question, what are words for? What are words for? They are to express that we have been purchased by someone who went to the cross for us. Do you know that your words have been purchased? Think about that. They're not yours. They're his. When Jesus saves you, it's not just some like little part of it. Well, just a little, a little part of me is his. It's the whole of us. What are words for? They're for his purposes, not your own. 
Ephesians 4.29 tells us that we're only authorized to use words that build up and edify. Did you know that? Did you know that elders, even when they correct someone, they're supposed to be for the person. They're supposed to be building them up. They're supposed to be restoring them if they're caught in sin. Galatians 6.1 says if anyone is caught in sin, it shouldn't surprise us. Sure. But every word, there's no words of condemnation. What are words for? Words spoken truthfully. There's so much to be said here. I mean, this is a huge subject. Words spoken truthfully can risk the relationship itself. Dan Allender, Christian counselor, writes, To love a person, I must be willing to lose my relationship to him or her. Well, what are words for? Well, they are for expressing how we have been purchased by God on the cross. Now, uh, if you, there's so much that could be said here. But I'd like you to just dwell upon one last thought. There were words that were spoken, and you were in, you were in mind. These words were spoken before the world ever came into being. Theologians uh, describe a conversation between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Words that were exchanged. It's called the covenant of redemption. What it is, is that within the Trinity, there was a conversation and an agreement. The conversation could be paraphrased like this. When the world falls into sin, who will go? Who will go that everything determined, everything foreordained, everything predestined, will come to pass. Who will go? Perhaps the Father is the one he's always attributed, the one who's planning redemption. And the Son is always attributed to the one who accomplishes redemption. And the Son, there must have been a conversation whereby the Son says, Oh, Father, I will go. And we find this reflected, these words that Jesus says on this earth. He says, I have been sent. Repeatedly, he says, I am doing the Father's will and I have been sent. The words that you are allowed to speak, to edify, and to build up others were purchased at a high price because the Son said, I will go. And the Spirit of God has applied salvation to your heart and made these words, the words of the gospel, the words of salvation, sweet to you. The Holy Spirit made you willing to believe. And so you are, you are brought into salvation because the plan of God that included this exchange of words has now been brought to fruition in time. And it's underway right now. What are words for? They are for the eternal God's glory for his greatness, for his fame, 
God wants you to speak kindness to those who need kindness. To speak grace to those who need grace. To build up those who need to be built up. To comfort those who need to be comforted. You play a role in the life of the church, which is the building up of the body of Christ. Reflect deeply that you've been purchased as well as your words. Let's pray. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. We thank you, Father, for the comforting words of Jesus from the cross who wanted to know, wanted us to know that it is finished. Thank you for the power of your words, for the report, the report that heaven gives when Jesus is received in glory. The report that heaven receives is the sending of the Spirit and now sealing us in redemption. Oh, Father, we have the report of Jesus' success in us. Oh, Father, we bow the knee of our life to you. May our words take on new purpose. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.